Thank you, Messiah. Uh, church, good to be with you. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Noah Chung. I'm the pastor here at the church. And uh, just a quick word on our deacons uh, as, uh, yeah, Jill's out of town, Melissa's sick, and really grateful for them. Uh, our hope as a church is that we would continue to build out our deacon team. We'll have more folks who have a passion to serve and care and pray for the church. And if there is any need or prayer request or area that we can serve you, um, whatever, whatever that is, a stage of life, we as leaders would love to do that. Uh, we want to be there for you. Uh, we know that even uh, the past few weeks and months, we've been able to serve some people in some unique, difficult situations in their lives. And so whatever it could be, even joys in your life, we would love to serve you. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, our phones are these uh, amazing Luke scripture journals. If you don't have one, feel free to grab one there in the back there. Um, we're going through the Gospel of Luke as a church today, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Uh, and if you're new with us, we began this a few weeks ago, and uh, just an FYI that we, we went through Luke 1, chapter 1, verse 4, but we kind of skipped ahead a few chapters because we're going to save those nice Advent, uh, Christmas stories for a little bit later, uh, but we're, we began in chapter 3. And so we're in chapter 4 today, uh, and as Jesus begins his ministry and how he lives, before we get to his ministry, we get to chapter 4, and he goes into the wilderness. Now, what's that? Well, I'm going to talk about that, but before I jump in, let me read chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And I'm reading from the ESV version here, so... Here we go. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory where it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we come before you on this cool fall day, um, even as our, our volunteers and ministry teams are praying today, we're reminded, God, that this fall day, as the leaves change colors and slowly fall to the ground, um, that they're, in a way, they're dying, but yet there's such beauty in their dying. Uh, and I pray, God, that as we get into your word and know what it means to follow Jesus, and you call us to even die to ourselves, that we would know that dying to ourselves is not so much dying and just ending but it's actually finding true life. It's finding wholeness and goodness and your love and being able to flourish. And so, Father God, as we walk through this passage, God, give us eyes, our ears to hear, um, hearts to receive, and may my words be your words and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
So uh, take a go back a little bit to my own history. Growing up, I love to play basketball. Now, as you can see, I'm not the tallest person in the world, like Thomas over there, but you know, I, I thought I had some game back then, okay? So which means that I thought I was kind of good. Uh, in middle school, so like sixth and eighth grade, I played on our school team, and I was good enough to be on the A team, all right? So I thought that was pretty good. Uh, and then when it got time to high school, what happened was we had freshmen and JV and varsity teams, and I said, like, I'm good enough to make the freshman team. And thinking that I'm definitely going to make this, like it's, it's going to be an, a breeze. And so tryouts, they started, and we had about like 30 freshman guys try out, 30 guys, and only about 13 or 14 made the team. And that week, my freshman year, was the worst week ever. H have any of you ever thrown up before because you ran too much? Any of you? Oh, some of you? It, I definitely did during that week. Uh, the first few days of that, of that tryouts, I didn't touch a ball, all right? We played basketball, by the way. I didn't touch a ball. We ran outside the school building. We ran up and down the stairs. We did side shuffles like these things through the hallways, all the way around. And I, I mean, it was so terrible because after that, then they would give you the ball and then you'd have to dribble it and see if you can actually make a layup when your legs felt like jello. It was terrible. Some kids even quit like within two to three days. And I'm not going to lie to you, when I was in that period of time, I was like, is this worth it? Is this really worth it? Should I just quit too? I mean, I'm going to make the team. I think I'm going to make the team. Why do I have to prove myself? But then, after about a week and a half, the coach started letting us know if we made the team or didn't make the team. And I was a bit nervous. Like, it really kind of dawned on me, like, am I really good enough? And there was, you know, some new guys that came that were better than I thought they would be. And then it was my turn. And he talked to me and another friend of mine named Matt. And he said to us, Noah and Matt, I'm not sure how much you'll play, but you made the team. And... To be honest, when I heard that, I was like, it was kind of a mixture of like relief and also failure because I had made the team, but I might not play. And I realized that I wanted to be this starter, this leader, but the coach told me I barely made the team. So instead of joy and celebration, there was this feeling of frustration and shame and regret. And at that moment, what did my 15-year-old self learn? I was not as ready as I thought I was. I was not as ready as I thought I was. Now, you might relate to me. Now, some of you might have done tryouts for sports. Some of you maybe even tried out for like uh, a musical group or a position or a theater group. But tryouts or tests, they're really part of life. You know, we try out at all levels of schooling, we, exams or applications. We try out for jobs, for with interviews and resumes and experiences. We even try out when we find a suitable marriage partner and maybe even find a good friend. Why do we have tryouts? Why do we have tests? One reason is to see if you are truly ready and qualified for the role ahead. So when we get to our text in Luke chapter 4, we see, in a way, Jesus' tryout or test to see if he is truly ready for the road ahead. Will he pass the test to be humanity's savior and king? 
Now, the answer might be obvious to us, but let's dig in and really understand what is going on here. And so to walk through this text, I have three questions that I want to walk through. And I'll go by them one by one, and they they flow a little bit. But let me just, you know, these are kind of the main questions that I'm asking, and I want us to kind of have a dialogue around this. So the first question, why did Jesus need to be tested? Like, this is the kind of the most obvious one, I feel like. Well, why is he going to be tested? Like, let's step back a moment. Isn't Jesus perfect, fully God, fully human? He has no sin, no brokenness. There's no ill thought in him. Why does he, out of all people, need to be tested? Well, if you look in verse 1 of our text, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, we see it's not Jesus' choice to be led to the wilderness. In a wilderness, just for some background, um, you can kind of picture the main title slide here. That's kind of what the wilderness looked like. It looks like. There's nothing. There's barrenness. Um, basically, a place where there's obscurity, no life, no water, where snakes and scorpions reside. That's the wilderness. It's a place of pain and death. But the wilderness is also a place in Scripture that we see where key figures like Moses and David and Elijah go to the wilderness because it's a place of great testing and formation. So in verse 2, we see that for 40 days, Jesus is tempted by the devil. That word tempted, uh, another translation could be Tested, Like the original Greek or the language of the, test, the New Testament, it also could be tested. But it's not like tested where you take an exam at the university. It's more like tested where someone sets up a trap for you, wanting you to fall and make a mistake. The devil, he knew that Jesus was about to begin his ministry. He is the son of God, but he is going into the wilderness with no food, isolated and tired for 40 days. And so the devil does everything in his power to tempt Jesus to make every or to make a mistake that we as humans make since the beginning of time, which is to fall into sin. The devil wanted Jesus's human side to disobey God and fail before he even began his ministry. So in a way, Jesus need to be tested to show us and to show all the readers of Luke that even with the devil throwing every temptation at him, even with the same desires and wrong things that could have come up with his human desires that you and I carry, even with the pressure cooker conditions of the wilderness, that Jesus is able to conquer sin, that he is able to conquer sin that no other human has been able to do. And so the overarching question in our text is, will the Son of God pass the most grueling test of humanity and come out pure, blameless, holy, and sinless? And the beauty of the story is that he did. He is the only human to do so. He is worthy. He is ready to begin the ministry the Father has given to him. But if you look at our story, our story of temptation, what happens to us when we're in the wilderness? What happens when the world or the devil or even our own desires tempts us or tests us to go against God's ways? We lose. We sin. We disobey God's commands. We serve our own pleasures and our own desires and our own kingdoms over God's. Though Jesus passed the test, none of us did. 
And the devil, who is also called to deceiver and accuser in Scripture, and by the way, is very real, will use every temptation to make sure we keep sinning. And like with Jesus, the devil won't play fairly. He'll poke and he'll uncover every, every deep and ugly and painful place in your heart to trap you and make you fall into sin. His goal, as Scripture says, is to steal, kill, and destroy each one of us to live apart from God and His ways, to live and die in our sins. That's what's happening in our story. But before I move on to the next question I have with the text, I want to kind of take a side tangent and give you three biblical truths about temptations. I don't, I don't have time to talk about a whole class or lesson about this, but just three truths that I want you to remember. Number one is that temptation is not a sin. Giving into it is, but the struggle or even the quick thoughts that come into our minds, our hearts, they're the reality of our brokenness. They're not sin. The second truth is that God can never tempt you. In James 1-13, through you see on the screen, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Temptation only comes from our own desires, from the world around us, and from the devil, the accuser. Truth number three, Jesus knows all your temptations. Jim read this last week in a sermon. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There isn't a single temptation that Jesus hasn't faced. So if all of this is true, the next question then is how? Like how did Jesus overcome these temptations in the wilderness and how are we to do so too? Which leads me to my second question. What temptations did Jesus overcome? What temptations did Jesus overcome? Now, there are three temptations in Luke, but before I go into each one, I don't believe these are the only temptations that Jesus faced. If you jump down all the way to your passage in verse 13 and look at the first section, it says, When the devil had ended every temptation. Most commentators and scholars believe that Jesus withstood a gamut of tests. Imagine every single temptation a human being can encounter in 40 days. The devil threw at Jesus. This was the devil's best chance to make the Son of God fail and spoil all of God's plans. He's not just throwing three temptations here. He's doing everything he can to make sure Jesus falls. But then the question is, why does Luke, and also in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, why, why do they only share three? And I think for me, one of the reasons, it, the larger biblical reason, I don't want to have time for this, but one of the reasons is that um, it connects to the people of Israel and how they failed in the wilderness, but how Jesus over, overcame every sin, and the three there relate to things that they failed in. But for us in our context, I, I think there's a deeper reason. I think it's because... These three temptations are the three core ways the devil tries to tempt us today. And so let me go through each one. The first temptation we see is that Jesus faces the temptation of instant gratification. Look at verse 3 here. The devil says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. In other words, if you are the Son of God, you don't deserve to be hungry. 
You are the one who made all food for all creation. Surely you can satisfy that grumbling stomach of yours. You, you deserve it. Have your fill. Now, would it have been wrong for Jesus to turn that stone into bread and to eat food? No, it's not technically wrong. But why does he not do it? Look at his response. It is written, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, the fuller verse is in Deuteronomy 8 through 3, and it says this. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The reason Jesus chose not to eat is because he desired a nourishment that never expired. After 40 days with no food, I don't know if you guys ever fasted two days or three days, but I imagine just how Jesus would look and feel. There would be no fat or muscle in his body. He would be so close to death. Yet he chose not to exploit his own power to gratify his own desires, but to feed and rely on God's enduring words. But for us, what does this temptation look like? You know, um, I was just talking with a friend the other day, and he was mentioning this, that in 2023, did you know that the American credit card debt has reached $1 trillion? That's 12 zeros, okay? And sadly, it's not dropping. And this doesn't include, you know, people's debts that are the house mortgages or, school, you know, school, uh, like college or even a car. And the question is, why is this so high? Well, one of the reasons is that our culture tends to buy things they can't afford. We buy vacations, clothes, cars, toys, materials, and so much more, even though we might not have the money to pay for it. We just click or swipe away. Now, I'm not saying, I don't want to take a step back here, I'm not saying that every single person who has credit card debt is... Um, this is the reason I know that even I know of some of people who, of tragic stories of people who've had to use it because they need to eat. Uh, and so I get that reality. I'm not talking about those stories. Uh, but the majority of reasons, I would say, is that there is a hunger and craving in our culture, in our hearts, and we use that credit card to get what we want. What do you feel like you deserve to have right now? A vacation? car, a house, or is it something deeper, a relief, a relationship, a pleasure, or some other gratification? Now, those things in and of itself are not wrong, but in this world, or the devil is perhaps saying to you that you deserve it now. What happens when we keep taking and consuming now, now? Now, what happens is that it begins to reject that we even trust God to provide, that we reject God to provide us life and purpose and joy. And it leads us down this path of temporal gratification where nothing is ever enough. It ignores even how high our depths are, our, our, our debt is, and we begin to become enslaved to our own desires and the idols of this world. It doesn't lead to fullness. It leads to eternal starvation. But God's word says the opposite. God says, actually, we are to wait. We are to withhold. We are to give away. We are to trust and depend on him patiently. Even in his hunger, Jesus was showing us the better way. 
The way of true life, our wholeness, is not gratifying our desires immediately, but slowly savoring on God's eternal work. God offers us an eternal and unlimited banquet, but oftentimes we settle for cheap Halloween candy. Which one do you want? That's what Jesus is showing us here. The second temptation we see, moving on, is to gain power and glory unjustly. To gain power and glory unjustly. In verse 5, if you look at your text again, it says, And the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. It's kind of like Jesus is watching like this montage video of him ruling with all power and fame and glory. Had all these awesome shots of him that no human could ever contain or control. But he could get it if he worshipped the devil. But notice here what's really interesting is that Jesus doesn't challenge the devil's authority. He doesn't say, you don't have that authority to give. He doesn't do that. What he does is he gives scripture. But the reality of this, and this is important to remember here, folks, is that the devil has power and authority on earth. I don't want to like make that less of what it really is. If you look throughout history, how nations and empires and rulers, how do they gain power and glory? Through force, through deception, through betrayal, oftentimes through corruption and evil that is empowered and encouraged by the devil himself. And this passage in Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that it is demonic forces that influence the rise and fall of empires. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The devil was promising Jesus what he promises every empire today. If you sell your allegiance to me and achieve power like me, you will get the kingdoms of the world. The devil doesn't necessarily want Jesus to like bow down to him. Like That's what we think about, but that's not really what's happening here. The devil wants Jesus to adopt his ways. But Jesus responds in Deuteronomy 6.13 that it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve which is saying, no, I will not gain power and authority by your ways. I will worship God by the ways of God. I will serve, not be served. I will execute justice, not exploitation. I will give, not take. I will welcome, not exclude. I will heal, not hurt. I will speak the truth, not speak lies. I will even suffer and die so that others may have life. This is the way that Jesus came and he spoke to the devil saying, I'm not going with your ways. I'm going with God's ways. Satan wanted Jesus to get the crown without the cross. Yet Jesus knew that his mission required suffering and death for our sake. But what the beauty of the gospel is, is that because of his sacrifice and his death and his eventual resurrection, that through his death, he would be given the name above every name and establish an everlasting kingdom unlike any kingdom on earth. But what about us? How does this show up in our lives? When the world of the devil tempts you to gain power or glory or control through his ways, the question is, do we take it? Will you lie or gossip about your coworkers so you can gain a promotion or a raise? Will you cheat on your work so you can gain a little advantage in class? 
Will you shame or judge others so you can look better or be admired before your friends or your community? Will you take from, exclude, or ignore others so that you can have more control and comfort over your life? You know, Henry Nouwen, a famous writer, he once said this, It's easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. Again, Jesus shows us the better way. Jesus chose love over power. He shows us that laying down our preferences, our comforts, our control, our power, so that others can be loved, could, be, could thrive, could flourish, and be what God has originally created them to do, that's what he wants us to do. The world will always tell you that you can have more power and glory if you do fill in the blank. But Jesus says, and he models, that power and glory will be given to you if you surrender, if you love others, if you sacrifice for others and worship God through that. Now moving on, the third temptation we see. The temptation to doubt our identity and God's promises. In verse 9, Satan takes Jesus here to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God is supposed to reign and reside. And he says, if you are the Son of God, Already there, you're seeing Satan produce some doubt in who he is. He says, jump off. God will save you. And then what he does here is fascinating, but he uses the word of God in this claim. In Psalm 91, he says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. So do it. Jump off and prove that you are the son of God. What's Satan doing here? He's smart. Oh, he's, he's smart. Satan is way smarter than any of us could even really imagine or think of. And so what he does is he twists God's words to attack the core of Jesus's identity. Remember, Jesus is tasting death here at this point. He's in the wilderness. He's struggling. And so there are most likely questions going on in his mind. He's not he, probably like, is this pain ever going to end? Is God, my father, still with me in the wilderness? Does he still care? Will he keep me alive? And so the devil wants to egg him on and wants to attack Jesus' identity at his weakest and say, are you really the son of God? Let's test God. Let's see. Let's see if his promises and his words are true. And what's amazing but also really sad is that the devil has done this since the beginning of time. That at the Garden of Eden, Satan came as a snake to Adam and Eve, and he said, Did God really say to not eat the fruit? Are you sure you will die? No, 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 you'll be like God, so eat it. Satan attacked the core of Adam and Eve's relationship with God, which then led them to test God and eventually disobey and get kicked out of the Garden. And similarly, for Satan, what he'll do for each one of us is he will speak lies into your ears all the time. And he'll do so in your weakest moments. Are you, are you sure God said that? Are you sure God really cares about you or your loved ones? Are you sure you belong in this church? Are you sure you're good enough, accomplished enough, pretty enough, smart enough? Are you sure you're saved? Look at how dirty, how broken, how much of a failure you are. Are you sure God can save that? Are you sure? Then once he stirs up that doubt in you, in your identity, 
he begins to say, let's test that. Let's, let's test if God really is who he says he is or who you are, who you say you are. And if he doesn't give you this or he, it doesn't take away that pain that you're asking, perhaps you are worthless or perhaps God doesn't exist. Perhaps God, God doesn't care about you. Church, how is Satan attacking your identity in Jesus right now? For me, uh, the question that I struggle with the most, that I know that the devil is speaking to me quite often, is, Noah, are you sure you're doing enough? You know, growing up, I grew up with uh, very much an absent father growing up, but I also grew up in a, a Christian household where we were we rewarded, you know, we were rewarded good for good behavior, for good grades, and good Christian practices, and um, in my life, there were, there was not a ton of avenues for love and affirmations, and so for me, there's a lie that I slowly believed and it materialized even stronger as it grew up was that I believe I had to do everything perfectly to earn love and affirmation from God, from my parents, from others, even in order to love myself, and when I didn't accomplish enough or when I was in seasons of failure or ceilings, or seasons of difficulty or hardship, I felt worthless. I felt like a failure. I felt unlovable. I felt like a terrible son or a parent or a person or even a Christian. And in those moments, it's, it's, he attacks you at the worst moments. I tested God like Adam and Eve did. I disobeyed. I indulged in behaviors and acts that were against God's commands. I doubted, I doubted God entirely at times. I did not love others or treat others well. And I'll be honest, church, that this question is still hard for me to answer. But how does Jesus overcome this temptation? He declares in Deuteronomy 6, you shall not put the Lord God to the test. What's unique in this declaration that's unlike the other two is that Jesus corrects the devil's lies and trickery. He declares what is true. Over and over again, Jesus deflects the lies of Satan with the truth of God's word. And as James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We resist the devil and his lies with God's word. And God's promise to you is that if you do it, not just once or just like put it on your wall or on your phone, not like, I mean, that's good, but like not just that, but when it's truly in your heart and in your mind and saturating your entire being, Scripture says, he will flee from you. The devil will flee from you. His lies will lose power over you. Now, there's way more I can go into this. I honestly think that each temptation could be a sermon in itself. But I want to remind us of this. These are three temptations that I believe every single one of us wrestle with. And I want to also say that these temptations, they're not like flash-in-the-pan situations. They're not just like thrown at you out of the blue, out of nowhere. No, these temptations are deeply rooted in our hurts, in our traumas, in our habitual sins, and questions we've had in our stories. Every temptation that you face is uniquely fashioned and designed and targeted for you. It's not random by any means. And the devil, he's smarter than us. He'll turn over every skeleton in your closet to make sure that you fall. And he'll use whatever he can to make God's children fall away and doubt who we are in God. And so the question is, what do we do? 
what do we do again? And it's kind of similar to the second question, but I want to answer it more fully in this last question where it says, what does Jesus' victory over temptation and sin mean for us today? Like, how does that matter, his victory in the wilderness? And I want us to actually go back to verse 1. And Jesus, as it defines him, before he's going into the wilderness, is these five words, full of the Holy Spirit. We can't miss this part. When Jesus conquered every temptation in the wilderness, he didn't do it alone. He's not doing it by himself. Every temptation Jesus conquers in the wilderness, he had the Spirit who was with him and working through him. The Spirit was the one probably recalling God's word when Jesus was too weak to even raise his voice. And when Jesus began his ministry after the wilderness experience and he proclaimed the gospel, he healed the sick, he was compassionate to the hungry and fed them and cast out demons, it was the Spirit that was the power to to work through him. And when Jesus would be betrayed and crucified on that cross because of our sins, it was the Spirit of God that raised his dead body from the grave and defeated every sin and death and the devil once and for all. And the beautiful news of the gospel is that the same spirit that was in Jesus in that wilderness that conquered every sin is in you if you believe in him. If you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and that you come repentant knowing that you cannot save yourself. The spirit becomes your advocate, your comforter, your encourager, your source of power and endurance. He helps you in your greatest weaknesses and temptations. It is the Spirit that helps you resist sin. It's the Spirit that works in the most broken areas of your lives. It's the Spirit that rewires your most addictive neurological pathways. It is the Spirit that heals your propensity to use substances, images, experiences, or even people to feed your sinful appetites. It is the Spirit that brings you joy, that helps us to love, and that speaks the truth when we cannot speak the truth. It is the Spirit that uses others, like counseling, like community, or others to help you lead away from temptation towards freedom and hope in the fullness of life. Jesus conquered sin and death. His victory at the wilderness and at the cross is so that you can have the same spirit like him. Church, let me just be clear. Our, Our goal as a church and as Christians is not to just stop sinning. Like, that's true and all. Like, I, I, that's really true, but it's a bit too short-sighted. Our goal is to surrender to the Holy Spirit and say, I can't do this on my own. I'm weak. I'm weak. I'm, I, I'm poor in spirit. I, I need you. The goal for us as Christ followers is to have the Spirit work in us, in our temptations, in the lies, in the shame, in the deep places of brokenness that need to be exposed and healed. And Following his command to do it in community, in the church, being vulnerable. It means opening up. It means being our true selves. It means entering into messy, messy lives and even understanding our emotions. You know, some of you, uh, I think a couple of you in this room that were going through this book, uh, this class that we had at Bridgeport and uh, Hyde Park called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And the book is titled, It's Impossible to be Spiritually Mature While Remaining Emotionally Immature. And I've been rereading it recently, and I can't help but like tell you all to read it as well. Because as you see in the cover of the book, there's an iceberg. 
And so often in our discipleship, in our walk with Christ, we are so quick to just address what's above water. Like we find every single way where we can like resist sin and not fall into sin and be accountable, which is good. Don't get me wrong. It's good. But oftentimes that just leads to behavior modification, which any person that not even a Christian could do. But the true work is required is to get to below the water where we need to uncover our whole selves, our wounded selves. Like, where exactly it, like, is our, te- our temptations coming from? Like, how did they come up? Like, why are they coming up? Why am I more tempted to do this or do that? We need to chip away at the depth of that ice that the devil does not want us to reach. And this is not easy work, church, and I don't have time, I don't have time this entire day to explain all of that. It's deeper work, and I invite you to be a part of it. Maybe read this book. You know, jump in a missional community, be more honest in relationships, uh, be more honest in your confession of sin and what you are really wrestling with, the questions that you're struggling with. And so we're going to deal with something a little bit different to close out our sermon, uh, to close out the sermon or the time, is we're going to have a time of prayer together. Um, we're going to have a time to um, wrestle with this because I know that each one of us are wrestling with temptations and fears and shames and regrets and angers that perhaps even some of you have given in to this week. So to close out our time, I want us to all spend some time with God. Uh, Our band will play some music. They will play a song even throughout this time. But what I'm going to invite you to do is to close your eyes, to close your eyes. Um, And I'm going to invite actually the deacons and and the elders to come up. And what I want to spend is, I want to spend like at least seven minutes here at least, for us to pray. Um, now, this, if this is really uncomfortable for you, just sit and listen. Um, but as we are going to spend some time praying together, I would love for you to, to reflect. Reflect on what was spoken or a temptation that you're wrestling with. Maybe it's um, a sin that you need to confess to God. Maybe it's uh, a request for God to help you. And if you are right now powerless to do this right now, we have leaders who would love to pray for you. We haven't done this at a church, but I would love to make this a practice that um, someone mentioned, a, a quote that I remember always is that the, the church is not um, a, a museum of saints, but that it's a hospital for broken people. And so for us, as we come, I would love for you to pray on your own or to ask one of us. I'll be here, Thomas, Miwa, and Christabel will be here to, to pray for you. Um, and so I, I invite you to this time. Uh, close your eyes too. I think... If you open your eyes, you can also, you know, you just be distracted and like, you know, look, oh, who's getting prayer? You know, just, just close your eyes. And if you are going to make your way up, though, do open your eyes and, you know, find someone to pray with. Um, but I invite you, uh, spend this time wherever you feel led. And so let me offer what a prayer to open this time. And then um, however God leads you to pray, I invite you to pray. You can even maybe even pray with uh, a spouse if you're with them or a friend nearby. Like that's all good, too. Uh, But let me open us, and then we'll have a time of prayer. God, we thank you for this space. This space that um, it's not just us here, but your spirit is here too. Uh, And God, we invite your spirit to work in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. Whatever you want us to reflect on, to think on, to pray to even maybe be bold and ask help for someone to pray for us. I pray that you do that, God. I pray that you would work in us. 
And God, we cannot do anything without you. You are our victor. You are our conqueror. You're the conqueror of all sin and death. And so we lean on you in this time. Help us, I pray. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.